0: Thanks for tuning in to the Calvary Now Podcast. At Calvary, our mission is to set people's hope in God and engage in the mission of God. Today, we're back in our study in the book of Mark, where we see how Jesus' teachings turned the perception of the kingdom of God upside down. Calvary West, good morning and welcome. My name is Ryan. I'm a pastor on the staff team here at Calvary West. If you're a guest, Uh, Cam said hello to you. I'd like to say hello as well. If we have not had the chance to meet, I'd love to say hello to you after the service this morning and uh, maybe get just tell you a little bit about Calvary West and what God's doing here, how you and your family can be connected to that as well. You know, one of the things I love about having two services is that when Cam does my favorite songs like Come Thou Fount, he has to do them twice. What? I mean, what just an incredible blessing. Uh, Go tell it on the mountain on Christmas Eve twice Come Thou found Today twice. It's amazing. Also, though, it gives me some time between the services to talk to folks. And uh, this morning I was asked by multiple people if I planned on talking about NC State today. And uh, I felt like maybe we could lay down what divides us and just celebrate what unites us. Duke lost last night, which is a great thing. So if you're happy about this morning, great. If you're sad about that, talk to me after the service. Just like to counsel with you a little bit. Um, Anyways, kids, if you're in kindergarten, first, or second grade, and you're going to Kids Connect, you see Miss Jennifer back there with the sign, you can head back to her now. Kids Connect, it's time for kindergarten, first, and second graders to connect with God and each other on their level. Your kids are welcome to go. Your kids are always welcome to stay through the service as well. If you are in elementary school and you're staying for the whole service... Um, we've got these sermon series notebooks for you. I've been talking about in the last couple of weeks. These are a great way for you to take notes, what God's teaching you, what you're learning from his word, and then to be able to talk about that with your parents, your grandparents, brother and sister later on. So if you need one of these this morning, uh, my wife, Mer- actually my son Mason is holding them. Mason, you hold those up for everybody? You can come and grab one of those right now. Take notes this week, bring it back with you next week. Take notes as well and, uh, and learn and just continue to learn what God is teaching you. Last week we heard Jesus give us this teaching from his upside down kingdom, <clears throat> excuse me, a teaching that really turns things on their head. And uh, Jesus does that all the time when he's talking about his kingdom because his kingdom, again, is an upside down kingdom. It does not work the way that we think that it should, or maybe the way that we would do things if we were in charge. And this particular teaching was on marriage. And divorce, it was prompted by a question that Jesus got from the religious leaders. They are seeking to entrap him, to catch him up in this controversy. And so they ask him, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? That's how Mark recorded the question. Matthew added a little more detail for us. And Matthew recorded the question like this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus, if I don't like anything about my partner, can I give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus speaking into that controversy teaches us something about marriage, that if you are married, marriage is meant to be your priority among your human relationships that it's meant to be a permanent human relationship and then it has a special purpose among all the different human relationships that we might have just recapping a little bit from last week because this week is going to be kind of a part 2 to what we started last week and because of those realities that Jesus lays out for us we see that divorce breaking apart a marriage is a concession not a command, right? It's a concession. It's an allowance. It's not something that God ever desires. And that reminds us of something significant, that often things that happen in our lives are things that God is allowing to happen, not things that he desires happen. God always wants the very best for us, but because we live in a sinful, broken, fallen world, those things do not always come to pass. Of course, divorce isn't something that we desire for ourselves either, at least not at the beginning of our marriages. And yet, even though God doesn't desire it, we don't desire it heading into marriage, it is sometimes the reality that marriage ends in divorce. And so the question I was left with last week that I was thinking about after last Sunday was this, what could I do right now to make sure that I never want to ask the question, is it lawful for me to divorce my spouse? What could we be doing For those of us who are married, what can we be doing to make sure that we're never asking the question, is it lawful? Is there a way out for me? From this marriage. That's a question that we have to ask now if we don't want to be asking that question about divorce later on. What could we do now? And we heard Jesus give us the blueprint for the ideal marriage from Genesis chapter 2. That's where he went back when he was answering this question from the religious leaders, back to the beginning, back to creation, back to God's original design for that. But you and I, again, we don't live in a Genesis 2 world. We live in a Genesis 3 world, the real world, the world that has been broken by sin. And so, really, what we're trying to figure out then the question that I was left asking last week, and maybe you were as well how can I have a Genesis 2 marriage, right, as close to the ideal as possible, while living in a Genesis 3 world that's been broken by sin? How can we pursue the ideal in the midst of the real world where our lives, including our marriages, are messed up, broken by sin, and the hardness? Of our own hearts. That's what we're going to talk about today. So, look with me at chapter 10 of Mark's gospel account. Mark chapter 10 is where we're going to pick up. We're going to read those first nine verses, verses that we talked about last week. And then, as we get super practical with this, this is going to sound like a very practical message. As we get super practical with this, we're going to go to Paul's letters as well to the Ephesians and the Philippians. So, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They replied, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Father, would you uh, meet with us now? God, would you move among us now by the power of your word and the power of your spirit? God, we recognize that you set the world up a certain way and that sin has broken that down. God, you are restoring all things to yourself, and we live in the in-between. God, in-between when things were right and when they will be right again, we find ourselves right in the middle of that. And so, God, things in our lives, things in our hearts, things in our homes and in our marriages are not always the way that you designed them to be. God, I pray that you would help us see the way back today, back towards your design, back towards the goodness, the beauty of what you created. Father, would you help that be our number one desire today. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've heard Jesus here in Mark 10 take us back to the beginning, back to Genesis chapter 2, to the ideal for marriage. And just a reminder, the ideal for marriage is this. Marriage is a covenantal relationship, covenant not contract, covenantal relationship between a man and a woman that binds them together as one flesh for life that's the ideal that's how God designed it in the very beginning and that's what he desires for marriage to look like even in the here and now how do we pursue that ideal in the midst of the real world that we're all living in we're going to talk about three different things the first is this if you want an ideal marriage in the real world if you want an ideal marriage in the real world start with following Jesus Start with following Jesus. I said that we're going to get practical by looking at Paul's letters. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 5. Okay, Towards the back of your Bible, we get out of the gospel accounts and into the letters uh, that Paul and others wrote to the church, past Acts, and you're going to see Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, we're going to get real practical. When you read Paul's letters, they usually follow a pretty similar pattern. First, Paul talks about everything that God has already done for you. So Paul never starts his letters out by saying, this is all the things that you have to do. This is how you can be a better person. This is how you can be a better Christian. This is how you can improve your life. Follow these tips and tricks, right? Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't put the emphasis on us. He puts the emphasis on God and what God has done for us through Jesus. And that's why when you read a letter like Ephesians, the whole first half of the letter is everything that God has done for us. Only then does Paul transition to talk about how we live in light of the gospel. Now that your heart is set on Christ, now that you're reminded, you're dwelling, you're meditating on everything God has done for you, here's how what God has done for you changes your real life, changes everyday life in the here and now. That's where we pick up in Ephesians chapter 5, the difference that following Jesus makes in everyday life. And Paul says this, be very careful. This is verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, uh, Paul is talking to the whole church here. The thing you probably recognize first when you read that is that that is not a, a marriage passage. That's not about marriage at all, actually. It is written for the whole church, and so it's got lessons for the whole church, whether you're married or not. But it's important to notice that it is to the whole church for a couple of reasons. And the first is that it reminds us that while marriage, right, if you're married, is meant to be the priority among all your human relationships, marriage itself is not the pinnacle of the human experience. We often think about marriage like that. Sometimes we talk about marriage like that. Sometimes it feels like that in a place like the church. You look around, there's lots of people married. It's like, man, it's, it's marriage, marriage, marriage. I, I, I notice sometimes when I'm giving examples, it's like this in your marriage and this at work and this if you're in school and this with your team. And you just default sometimes to that reality. I notice that at least for myself, but marriage is not the pinnacle of the human experience. Following Jesus is the pinnacle of the human experience. The way to the good life is not through marriage, it's through Jesus. And you can experience the good life that God created you for, that he designed you for, that he wants for you, whether you are married or not. That's important for us to remember, even as we're focusing in this morning on marriage. And second, it reminds us that following Jesus is the prerequisite for human flourishing, not marriage right? Following Jesus is the way that we connect to flourishing in all kinds of different areas of our life, marriage included, but it's following Jesus that leads to the flourishing, not marriage in and of itself. While it is a good thing, while it is a blessing, right, it is not the way to human flourishing in and of itself. It's in following Jesus that we experience true human flourishing. With that in mind, we can recognize that what Paul is saying certainly does have implications for marriage, and that's what we're going to focus on right now. Three things that Paul identifies As implications of following Jesus that are absolutely critical. If you want to experience something like the ideal, the Genesis 2, in the Genesis 3 world, the first is from verses 15 through 17 when he's talking about wisdom. Following Jesus gives us wisdom. Wisdom is just understanding how life works best, right? Understanding how life works best in the real world. It's biblical knowledge, true biblical knowledge, applied to the realities of everyday life that is what biblical wisdom is all about it's not just knowing the right things it's knowing how to apply those things in your everyday life and so wisdom is all about bringing the ideal to bear on the real, right? What God created, what God designed, how he wants things to be, how can I translate that into the real world where I'm struggling with sin and everyone around me is struggling with sin? That is true wisdom. And Paul would say that's only available to us when we follow Jesus, because Jesus, he says to the Corinthians, is the embodiment of all wisdom, right? In Jesus is wisdom. You can't find it anywhere else. That's why Paul would say to the Ephesians, right, that before you came to Christ, your mind and your heart were darkened by foolishness and sin. So if your mind and your heart are darkened by, foolish, by the foolishness of sin, there is no way for you to take true biblical knowledge and apply it to your real life. You're too busy thinking about what's my knowledge, what's my wisdom, what are, I want the most, let me get that in my real life. You would never even pursue what God says is good and right and best. When you're in that darkened state, the hardness of your heart. So Paul says it is only through Jesus that we can experience, find the wisdom that we need for life in the real world. The second implication is this from verse 18, that following Jesus gives us the spirit. He says, do not get drunk on wine. Don't let yourself be controlled by that or anything else, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is the third member of the divine Trinity. So it's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. What we sang about this morning, and Jesus promised his followers that even after he was gone, right, he's trying to get them ready for this reality, I won't be here with you forever. And J.D. Greer wrote a whole book about this uh, called Jesus Continued, Why the Spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you, which kind of goes into this, but it's better for us, right, to have the Spirit, all of us, than just a small group of us to have Jesus right beside us. But he's trying to prepare them for that future reality. I'm going to die. I'm going to be resurrected to heaven, right? And I'm not going to be here forever, but you will still have the power and presence of God with you. Well, how can that be possible? So far, Jesus has been their connection to the power and presence of God. After Jesus leaves, he sends the Spirit of God to everyone who trusts in him. And so everyone who trusts in him now has the power and presence of God available. That's why Peter could say to the church, listen, you have everything that you need for life and godliness, everything that you need. Once you trust Jesus, once you understand the gospel and believe it and your hope and your faith are in him. After that, you have everything you need because you have the Spirit with you All the time. So there's nothing that you need to wait on. There's no next level of Christianity, right? You start here, and then to really get into it, you need something else. Paul or Peter, excuse me, says, Man, when you trust Jesus, you've got everything that you need for life and for godliness. It's the Spirit who enables and empowers us, who helps us be able to do what God is calling us to do in the first place. That's true for life in general, that's certainly true in marriage. As well, You can never pursue the ideal that God wants for you apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why so many of our change projects, I'm going to do this different. I'm going to do that different. I'm going to change in this way. I'm going to improve my life in that way. They fall flat. Why? Because we are not, we're not uh, engaging in them by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're trying to do it on our own. Third implication is this from verse 21. Following Jesus gives us humility, and this is huge. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That command from Paul is to the whole church. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's something that is for the entire church. And it is absolutely impossible to do unless you are following Jesus. Remember, this is an upside down kingdom. So at work, you're trying to get to the top of the pile, right? The top of the ladder, the top of the the income, you know, range in your position, the salary range in your position. At school, you're trying to get the best grades on your team. You're trying to get the starting position. All of those things are true in the world. They are not true in the kingdom of God, because his kingdom is an upside down kingdom. For Jesus, the way up is down. The way to be exalted is to become a servant and to be humble. And so following after Jesus, both in his teaching and in his example of his life, we humble ourselves and put others before ourselves in the same way that Jesus, uh, Paul says to the Philippians, he humbled himself. He made himself nothing even to the point of death, death on a cross. So Paul identifies here in Ephesians three things for us that are absolutely critical if we're going to pursue the ideal in marriage, right? We have to have wisdom. We have to know how life works best and how to engage with our spouse in a way that is actually beneficial and productive. We have to have the spirit or we'll have no power to do what God is calling us to do. And we have to have humility. We have to be able to put the other person before ourselves if we're going to have a marriage where we can be fully known and fully loved. Second big thought, oh, sorry, one more thing. What that means is that if you want a great marriage, if you want an ideal marriage, if you want Genesis 2 to be true in your marriage, in your, in your life, and for your family, right, you can't start with a focus on your marriage. You can't go into this and go, man, something about my marriage is broken. I've got to focus on that. I've got to fix that first. That's not the way that it works in the long run. If you want to see good things come in your marriage, if you want to trust Christ in that, if you want to see real transformation that lasts start with you and your following after Jesus first, because he's the only one who has the resources that you need to improve anything about your marriage in the first place. So first big thought, if you want the ideal and the real, start with following Jesus. Second big thought is this, if you want the ideal in the midst of the real, right, an ideal marriage in a real world, stop listening to the culture. Stop listening to the culture. You and I, we live in the culture, we hear its messages all the time. If you've got any kind of an app that plays video content, Facebook, right, Instagram, TikTok, MySpace, YouTube, whatever you've got, okay, that's for the elder millennials among us, whatever you've got, okay, if it plays video content, you are ingesting the message of the culture and the message of our particular culture here in the modern West is called expressive individualism. We've talked about this before, but the gist of it is this. Expressive individualism says that all truth is internal to the self. So my truth for my life is internal to me. I'm therefore the only one who can discover it. And I should discover it. It's right. It's good for me to discover that truth. And then the next best thing I can do after discovering my truth is to live it out in the world as authentically as possible. Right? That I would be the real me, true to myself. And so all of life becomes this self-fulfillment project, right? This personal fulfillment. I know the truth about me. You don't have access to that truth, but I do. I've discovered it, and now I've got to live that out authentically in the world around me. All of life becomes like a hero's journey, an epic quest for that type of personal fulfillment that we would live out our truth in the world. And anything that furthers my quest for personal fulfillment, we call that good, and we want more of it. Anything that hinders our quest for personal fulfillment, right, that puts limits on us or constraints on us. We call that bad and we want less of it. If you import that thinking to marriage, you get the cultural reality that we're living in today, where marriage is also seen as a personal fulfillment project. And so if my marriage furthers my quest for personal fulfillment, great, I'll stay married. If my spouse is helping me become who I know I need to become, great, I'll stay married. But if they're not, Right, If they're putting some constraint on me, if they're limiting me in some way, then I've got to get divorced. I've got to get out of that relationship that's putting constraints on me in the same way that I would get rid of anything else that hinders me from living out my truth authentically in the world. Paul's about to say something in Ephesians that just blows that thinking out of the water. It is impossible, it is impossible to see what Paul says in Ephesians and our idea, cultural idea of marriage as personal fulfillment These two things cannot both be true at the same time. Listen to what he says, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. If I could summarize what Paul is is kind of teaching here, it's that marriage is not about personal fulfillment. It's about purpose fulfillment. Marriage is not about your personal fulfillment. It's about fulfilling God's purposes for your life. Everything we read about marriage from Jesus in Mark and now from Paul in Ephesians keeps going back to the ideal of Genesis 2. You heard Paul do that in verse 31, right? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's just quoting Genesis 2 again, the same thing that Jesus did with the religious leaders. And the message is clear. We cannot know the truth about marriage By looking around at the culture, you cannot discover the purpose of marriage by looking around at the culture. You cannot discover how to fix a broken marriage. By looking around at the culture, we have to look back at creation. You cannot find that by looking at the culture. We have to look back at creation. It's only looking back at creation that we're reminded of that special purpose of marriage, creating a human relationship where you can taste something of the divine relationship where you are fully known and fully And according to Paul, that happens best and most fully when two things are true. First, when wives trust and follow their husbands, just as the church trusts and follows Jesus. And second, when husbands love and sacrifice for their wives, just like Jesus loves and sacrifices for the church. When those two things are happening, marriage becomes this place where you can be fully known and fully loved where you can be honest and still embrace where you can be vulnerable and still loved and accepted. And I know that this passage has been used in lots of bad ways right in the past. And, and I'm sure still in the present day that it's been used more like a club to beat you over the head with. And so when you read it, it's not a comfort. There's all this confusion about it. And you know when I was doing student ministry there was this little like clique of guys who would do this like submit to me woman and make me a sandwich woman you know stuff to the girls in the youth group and I was like well first of all you're going to be single forever but second of all that's not what Paul's talking about right that is not <clears throat> not what Paul's talking about <clears throat> excuse me sometimes that's said in like a joking way sometimes people are very serious in interpreting those verses like that, like this means that women must submit to men. That is not at all what Paul is saying. Paul never says that women submit to men. He says that a single wife is to submit to her single husband. One on one, right? It's not all women to all men. It's not all wives to all husbands. It is a wife to her husband. And that is it in the way that the church submits to trusts, and follows Jesus. But Paul isn't, just telling wives to submit to their husbands. That's not all he has to say here. And sometimes we read those verses and it's a shock to the system and that's all we hear. But Paul goes on, he says more to husbands, actually, than he says to wives. He also tells husbands, right? You must love your wife like this. And the bar that he sets is so unbelievably high for husbands. You must love your wife like how? Like Christ loved the church. You must be willing to give up everything For your wife, just like Jesus gave up his very life for the church. It is just as hard for a wife to trust and follow her husband as it is for a husband to love and sacrifice for his wife. And we have to recognize what Paul is saying here sounds insane in light of the cultural message that we hear all the time. It sounds ridiculous. And you've probably heard or read or thought, you know, like thought that before. Like that's crazy, right? Why, like as a wife, like I could never submit to my husband like that. I've got to keep up with all this stuff for him anyways. How could I ever trust him to lead me? Or a husband thinking about his wife. Like I could never love my wife like that. Like she's so this and so that and demanding and Gosh, she's, it's miserable. I could never love her like that. And we, it feels sometimes impossible, especially when you think about expressive individualism and, and personal fulfillment. If my highest goal in life is to discover the truth about myself, and live it out authentically in the world. Well, then, as a wife, it is going to be impossible. It's going to be impossible to trust and follow your husband rather than trusting and following your own heart and your own truth. For husbands, it's going to be impossible to love and sacrifice for your wife, to lay down your very life for her if you've made your whole life about yourself. About your own fulfillment, about your own joy, about your own comfort, about your own hobbies, pursuits, wants, desires, whatever. You're so used to loving and sacrificing for yourself, it'll be impossible to love and sacrifice for your wife in the way that Paul is talking about here. Now here's the thing, we cannot listen both to the culture and to the scriptures when it comes to marriage. Right? We cannot listen to both of those, give them equal weight and it'll just balance out. I'll take a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of the culture. One of those messages will always speak louder to us than the other. We will always walk down one of those roads or the other. They are not parallel paths. And you cannot walk down them both at the same time. And so if you want to pursue an ideal marriage, a Genesis 2 marriage in a Genesis 3 world, stop listening to the culture. Marriage is not about personal fulfillment. It's about fulfilling God's purposes for you in your life. The message, the culture's message, expressive individualism, personal fulfillment, it only leads to more sin and more brokenness and more hardness of heart in the end because you are bending everything in that system back to yourself. It leads to disaster in the end, even if it feels good for a minute. Third big thought for today is this. If you want an ideal marriage in the real world, become a skillful partner. Okay, if you want an ideal marriage in the real world, become a skillful partner. Three skills in particular that are just so important to overcome sin, brokenness, and the hardness of our own hearts. I talk about these in premarital counseling all the time. They always come up in marriage counseling, no matter what the issue is. These three things are so, so important. If you can do these three things, if you can figure these things out, man, you can figure almost anything out. If you cannot do these three things, you can figure almost nothing out in marriage. The first skill is communication. Okay, the first skill is communication. Paul in Ephesians 4, so a little bit earlier in his letter, but still when he's talking about the implications of following Jesus, he says this, do not let any unwholesome talk, 429, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Of course, this applies and so will the other ones to all of life, not just marriage, but we're talking about them in the context of marriage. For Paul... And when it comes to communication, living in light of the gospel, right, because the gospel turns everything on its head, because Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, the way that we normally think about communicating, right, I've got these thoughts, I've got these desires, I've got these wants and these needs, and the only way that other people will know them and be able to accommodate them is if I communicate them, right? So I've got to learn, how. and and sometimes, man, in in counseling, we do the same thing, right? Well, What are his needs and what are her needs? And how can you communicate those effectively to each other? And that can be an important part of the counseling process. That is a part of communication. It's just not the most important part of communication anymore, according to Paul. It's no longer about me communicating what I want and what I need. Now it's about building my spouse up according to her needs, that my words will be a benefit to her when she hears them. I just want you to imagine for a second how different, how transformative that would be in your relationship really in any of your relationships, but if you're married in your marriage, if that was the way that you talk to your spouse all the time. If it was always, man, I pay such close attention to my spouse that I know her needs or I know his needs. So I'm already, I'm already tuned in, I'm already paying attention, and now I'm taking the initiative to craft what I say in a way that builds her up according to those needs or builds him up according to those needs. Can you imagine how different your life would be, how different your marriage would be, how different your work would be, Your students with your friends would be? If that was your goal, that was your desire when you communicate. It's no longer about me. Now it's about you. It's no longer about my needs. Now it's about your needs. It's no longer just so that you can ultimately give me what I want. I got to tell you what I want so you can give it to me. That's about me figuring out what you want, what you need, and going after that with my words. That would be transformed. The second skill is conflict resolution. Conflict resolution. Paul says this to the Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better. The word is like priority. Consider others before yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now think about the heart of conflict. What is the gist of every conflict you've ever had? I want what I want. You want what you want. And I'm seeing you as standing in the way of, what I, of me getting what I want, right? So you are now an obstacle that I've got to either overcome by winning the conflict or go around, right? Maybe by ignoring you or setting you aside in some way. If you get in the way of what I want most, then we're going to be in a conflict about that until either I win or you win or we figure out some other solution. That's the gist of conflict. James says that, right? Why do fights and quarrels happen among you? Because you want what you want and you're not getting it. And so what if, though, in Jesus's upside-down kingdom, what Paul's saying here, I look not only for what I wanted, but for what you wanted first. What if when there was a discussion, a debate about this or that or the other thing in marriage, what if instead of just fighting for what you want, scrapping and striving to have your way, manipulating, cajoling, whatever, you say, honey, tell me what you want in this, and let me see how I can work towards that end. Can you imagine how transformative that would be in your relationship? Maybe you're looking down the road at marriage one day. You're not there yet, but you know that's maybe a part of the future for you. Can you imagine how different your marriage would be than marriages that you've seen? Maybe your own parents or family or friends, right? If that's how you went into a disagreement, that's how you went into a conflict, not to win it, but to win it for the other person. And if the other person wasn't in to win it for themselves, but they were trying to win it for you, Everybody's needs would be met, right? But it wouldn't be you fighting and battling to get your needs met. Your spouse would already be doing that for you ahead of time. Biblical conflict resolution looks out for the good of the other person first and not just for the good of the self. The third skill that we need is confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. Ken Sandy wrote a book called Peacemaking for Families. And it's an excellent book, um, and it does such a great job of applying, like, the skills of confession and repentance, right? Confession and repentance is much more than saying, I'm sorry. It's much more than saying, I'm sorry if you were offended. I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. I'm sorry if that thing that I did bothered you, right? Confession and repentance, man, it's so much more than that. Confession and repentance are the skills that bring us back from the reality of the broken world, sin and brokenness and hardness of heart and back towards the ideal. How do I get from where we are right now to where I know God wants us to be? It's confession and repentance every time. In the same way, how do I get from where I am as an individual, cut off from God because of my sin, back to a relationship with him? It's confession and repentance, believing the truth of the gospel, right? That Jesus has come to save me, and he's the one who, God, I'm sorry for everything I did to run away from you. Will you please forgive me? I'm trusting you now, Jesus, to bring me back. And in marriage, it's the same way. If you're here and your spouse is here and there's just been this long and drawn out conflict, listen, we can't get into all the you know, intricacies of that, but if that's where you are in your marriage, then the skill you need most more than anything else, I guarantee you, is confession and repentance. That's why Jesus says that you remove the log from your own eye before you reach for the speck in your brother's eye or in your partner's eye, in your husband's eye or in your wife's eye, right? Because we have to do that work first before we can accurately see to help someone else. When I confess my sin, it, it removes the cloud of sin, the confusion of sin, the darkness of sin and its foolishness, right? And allows me to see things clearly for the very first time. And so maybe for you right now, you know, man, confession and repentance. I don't, I, I, if you're thinking to yourself, I can't remember the last time I confessed a sin to my spouse, this is probably the place to start. Hey, can I talk to you? I just want to say, I'm sorry about This, 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 and this. I know that those things are wrong because they're wrong in the scriptures. And I'm sorry that I did them. I'm confessing my sin to you. Will you please forgive me? And let that be the first step to a new and a better marriage for you. Confession and repentance. Those are the course correction skills for all of us who are stuck in this sinful, broken world that bring us back from reality and towards the ideal of what God has created for us. If you want an ideal marriage in the real world, Genesis 2 and a Genesis 3 world, right? Start with following Jesus. You can't just focus on your marriage. You've got to focus on your relationship with God through Christ. Stop listening to the culture. The message of expressive individualism and personal fulfillment will leave you devastated in the end and become a skillful partner. These are three things that can help us that our marriage has become a place where we can be fully known and fully loved. They can help us stop from ever getting to the place where we want to ask, is it lawful for me? Is it okay for me? Is it right and good for me? To divorce my spouse doing those things now will build strength into your marriage failing to do them can build weakness into your marriage so that later on you're asking very different questions i want us to reflect on two things and the first is this like do i even desire an ideal marriage do i even desire a genesis 2 marriage or have i settled for some other vision for marriage right have i settled for the cultural vision for marriage it's just another personal fulfillment project Have I settled maybe for my parents' vision for marriage? This is how I saw their marriage work, so it's how I assume mine should work. Have I settled for my friends or my friend group, like their vision for marriage and we all talked and yeah, that's what marriage should be about? Or do I have a real genuine desire to see a Genesis 2 marriage be my marriage, right? Where my spouse can be fully known and fully loved, where I can be fully known and fully loved and we can pursue God and his mission for our lives together. What is your vision for marriage? And the reason I'm asking is because if you don't desire it, or if you don't have a desire for that in the first place, it'll never come true in real life. You'll never work towards that if you don't have a desire for it. first. The first thing that we do today, maybe just to confess to God, God, I've had the wrong idea about marriage all along. And so, of course, I've been working in the wrong direction, further and further away from Genesis 2. God, would you please forgive me for that? Help me to have a real, true, biblical vision for the beauty of of marriage second thing I, I want us to think about is like where do I need help right now of the three things that we talked about starting with following Jesus is that where you need help right now and you realize man your relationship with God has grown cold cold it's grown stagnant it's stale there is no passion there is no genuine love there there's no real like relational dynamic there between you and God through the spirit through Jesus is that where I need to start right, with me and my relationship with God. I know if I can get that right, then my everything in my marriage will be a whole lot easier down the road. So that's the right place to start. Or is it not listening to the culture? Are you just consuming content all the time from the culture and never content from the scriptures? You're, you're hearing what the culture says about marriage and how it should work best, but you're never hearing from God about it. Is that the right place to start? Or is it in becoming a skillful partner? hey, I recognize that my patterns of communication are destroying my marriage. I recognize that my way of resolving conflict is leading to more conflict. I can't remember the last time I confessed sin against my spouse to my spouse. A bad attitude, a hurtful word, right? A selfish motivation or a selfish action. And maybe that's where I need to start today. What's the right next step for you? What help do you need right now? And I just want us to pray. So you can close your eyes, you can bow your heads. I just want, if you're married, if you're not married, those skills, communication and conflict resolution, confession or repentance, I want you to focus on what of those three things do you need to cultivate in light of what God has done for you, in light of the way that the gospel changes everything. Which of those three things needs to be strengthened in your heart and in your life? If you are married, and in light of everything God's done for you, In light of the vision for marriage he's calling us to, what's your right next step so that you're not asking the question in the future, is it lawful for me to divorce my spouse? Can I get out of this somehow? You're investing now so that that question never comes to mind. Thanks again for joining us on the Calvary Now podcast. We desire that Calvary would be a place of belonging and hope where no one wants alone if you're not already we would love for you to join us in person at either of our campuses on sunday mornings at 9 or 10 30. for more information visit us at calvarynow.com